0: All right, well, we're continuing with Christians in the state, going through the actual questions that uh, you all posted over the past month or so. Um, <clears throat> trying to answer them, and I we'll say it's a minefield. Up here, things are going to be said that folks aren't going to like. Some of you, I'm, I'm sure almost all of you have listened to something, heard something that's like, well, I don't know if I agree with that. And we're just trying to bring the scriptures to bear on a very difficult situation. Our country has never gone through this. We've never had two attempted coups. We've never had people in office with radical ideologies like we have today, ideologies that will undermine the very foundations of our society and government. So this is a hard time. Uh, Emotions are high. Opinions are entrenched. And what I ask for you is just to bear with us. We're trying to bring the scriptures to you. We're trying to have you have a good day of judgment over these things. See, a lot of you, I think, gosh, I wish I lived during the Reformation. At least some of you do, right? Well, how would you have acted in the Reformation when the world was actually changing in a crazy way? Uh, They were changing from feudalism to nationalism. That was a huge shift, took hundreds of years. Uh, A lot of things going on, a lot of injustices, a lot of manipulations. How would you really have reacted? You can read back in in, in a... history of the surface of things and imagine yourself as being next to Martin Luther encouraging him but really (laughs) would that have happened (coughs) Um, and you would have been confronted with the same conflicting things that we are confronted with today Um, so it's no surprise if people have strong opinions Uh, the, the more committed a person is to righteousness and principle the more opinions you're gonna have so what we're trying to do is to bring the scriptures to bear, and that our ultimate message is, look, my brothers and sisters, we are citizens of heaven. That's a very real thing. Why are we all that concerned about our citizenship on earth, other than our children, things like that? I mean, I realize those things are there. I have grandchildren uh, I'm, I'm concerned for. But in terms of our emotional commitments and our evaluations of things, the scriptures present this consistent picture that we are citizens of heaven. So in trying to address this, we wanted to come from the scriptures. We just gave some general perspectives uh, from the scriptures. Um, a lot of Proverbs, uh, core key New Testament passages, Matthew 17, 22, Romans 13, Titus 3, 1 Peter 2. Tried to look at the big picture. That didn't work out so well, but I tried. Um, We're now uh, dealing with the questions, and we've been addressing them, and we're trying to remind you each week about New Covenant directives, things that the New Testament itself bringing to bear Old Testament things at times. The New Testament is just just truly imposing upon us as Christians because of our privileges as believers in Jesus and our union with him, and that we're seated at the right hand of God with him, Ephesians chapter 2. And so these are some things that the New Testament puts forward that is sort of the background for our answering these questions. We're trying to draw upon these things. There is uh, what we call milieu. There's demeanor, perspective, focus, persecution, civil disobedience, and self-defense. And When it comes to milieu, I've been sort of each week just uh, giving a quick uh, passage to sort of represent what we mean by milieu. Milieu, again, means the social environment around us, and that would include politics, et cetera, just sort of the world we live in, the milieu we live in. <clears throat> and we are to be witnesses in a real world of sin and darkness, and idealism regarding people or human government will certainly fail. Idealism is not going to survive what's going on here. Get rid of all idealism. Idealism doesn't work. We need realism. And we must be sober-minded. Realism. Okay? Okay. We must be realists. So Matthew 24, 4 through 8, these are some of the last words Jesus leaves with us in Matthew. Jesus answered and said unto them, See that no one mislead you about his second coming. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Here's the context in which Christians will live. Wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not frightened by this stuff. For those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. That's the beginning, not the end, by the way. For nations shall rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Again, war is going to be the context in which Christians will find themselves. Hence the book of Revelation has those four horses, right? Four horses of the apocalypse running through. One of them is, is war. <clears throat> kingdom shall rise up against kingdom. In various places there's going to be famines and earthquakes. Isn't that one of the four horses of the apocalypse? You know, Famine. Famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. So this isn't the end. Everybody goes, oh, there's earthquakes everywhere. It's the end. It's like, no, Jesus said this is the beginning of things. Um, the context is the Roman peace, the Pax Romana, known in history for 200 years, basic peace in the empire, and things were just going to come, totally come unglued and come apart. And Jesus said, you are, are, are going to live through these things, the barbarian invasions, the feudal Middle Ages. I mean, Jesus is speaking of a great long time to come, not just an immediate future. Christians are going to live in these things. And as Christians, we have to respond well to these things. And if we're always getting our hackles up about injustice and claiming rights and privilege, we're not going to get anywhere because that's not going to stop the wicked. it's not going to stop the wars. I mean, we have to understand that this is the context in which we must learn to be witnesses and we must do it well. Jesus goes on to say, then they will deliver you up to tribulation. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name at that time. Many will fall away. There will be many Christians who are going to abandon the principles of the gospel. They won't stop claiming to be Christians, but they're going to abandon the principles of the gospel as they sh- which should be adhered to, but they're just going to walk away from them. This is the context, Jesus said, in which you must live your Christian life. You're going to be betrayed by one another and going to hate one another. You're going to live in people hating you. And what we're in today, if you say, you know, all lives matter, you're just what? That's like the greatest sin of all, I think, or at least used to be. At least that was two months ago's flavor of sin. I don't know what it is this month. Um, It's always a moving target with them. But, you know, you're just hated for no reason. And they have their absurd reasons, but they're irrational and don't hold up. And so you're going to be hated. They're going to give their reasons, but they won't be real ones. Many false prophets will arise just to confuse things. Many people are going to come and have answers to all this stuff that are not truly from God. And they're going to mislead many. There's going to be many falling into the pit, taking the wrong fork in the road in many different ways. This is the reality. This is the world in which we have to live and survive as Christians and not just simply survive and make it, but... Survive as true witnesses and faithful witnesses of Christ because lawlessness has increased most people's love will grow cold look at our look at our world around us lawlessness is everywhere you tend to hunker down instead of be open hearted and open minded but the one who endures to the end you will be saved that's a qualification folks you got to make it to the end okay you don't get you don't get to quit halfway and say well hey you know I get 50% credit Um, you got to make it to the end so Christians are going to live in the midst of all this, and Jesus said, what is our focus to be in all of this? He says, here's the milieu in which you live, and here's what you're supposed to accomplish in the middle of it, in the middle of all this opposition, in the middle of all this, uh, you know, just, just grief and pain. Here's what you're supposed to be doing. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached. By who? By Christians. Okay. At every level, whether celebrity preacher style and, and talking to hundreds and thousands, or whether in a local little... Uh, <clears throat> Mission work over here at Miracle Hill, whether it's in this church, whether it's on sidewalks, uh, wherever it is, whether it's at work across a table at lunch. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world and notice, as a testimony to all nations. That's what we're here to do. We're here to testify. Let the chips fall where they will. Remember what Paul says, for we are sweet savor of Christ in them that are being saved and in them that are perishing we have an obligation to testify regardless of the results god controls the results we must be faithful with the message in the midst of a crazy world okay? and so these are the words of jesus and this is what we're trying to convey this is our emphasis all the little details i know you want answers from us most of them are like you're going to have to answer that for yourself if you want my answer you may not like it okay but you know this is what we're trying to say do you want a good day of judgment Everybody's so focused on the world right now. Do you want a good day of judgment? Because that's certain. Nothing else is certain, but that day is absolutely certain. And so we want you to have a good day of judgment. Uh, Demeanor, how are we to, you know, present ourselves? Let (coughs) Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men, Philippians 4. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is our demeanor. In the midst of it all, this is our demeanor. Remember, in chapter one of this letter, Paul talked about you all are having persecution. Paul writes this to people who are being persecuted, that you're to have this demeanor in the midst of it. Sounds like something that, you know, you you just, you know, on a Sunday you get to read and be at peace and... You know, sit mint juleps on your, on your front lawn. But that, that's not the context of this. Yeah. It's persecution we're to have these things. Perspective, just general, we looked at general perspective, but this is specific New Covenant, New Testament perspective. But we're gonna reach into the Old Testament for this one this time because Jesus does. Do not fret because of evildoers, Psalm 37, one. do Don't fret. Don't be envious. Don't go either way. We read this in Proverbs 24 last week. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. The wicked are going to pass away. You don't, you don't have to be the instrument. There's the famous bu- bumper sticker of the marine. You know, we, we don't you know, judge people, God does. We just arrange the, uh, you know, the, the meeting. Um, we don't arrange meetings, okay? Uh, that, that's not our goal. We're not here to, to arrange meetings. Uh, the wicked are going to pass away like the grass. We're not to, you know, we're to look at that and go, okay, here's the wicked. They look like, as it says in the psalm, look like they're like a big green bay tree. I have no idea what a big green, green bay tree is, but I'm betting it's pretty big. In the middle of an of a arid land, a big tree. When they rise up and look like they're just dominating everything, don't fret. Don't worry. Trust in the Lord and do good. Isn't that what we've been saying for weeks now? Trust in the Lord and do good. This is simple stuff. Dwell in the land. Don't go running away. Don't go run for the hills. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness on your part. You pay attention to what your responsibility is. Delight yourself in the Lord. Isn't that what we just read in Philippians? In the middle of the wicked, being like the Green Bay tree, spreading everywhere, injustice everywhere, deception everywhere, manipulation everywhere, delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord and trust in him. In the midst of this, you say, Lord, I'm trusting in you. I wanted to do more, but we didn't have time. But this psalm goes on and it's really cool. It says the Lord's gonna laugh at the wicked because God's got a mousetrap for them that they're not gonna get out of. And you gotta trust God's mousetrap. And just interesting, in in reading Isaiah, I'm reading through chapters one through 11, just trying to master it uh, just for my own purposes and for some other reasons. And just here's King Ahaz. And King Ahaz is living in Judah, remember our little map I've been presenting to you, and there's Damascus and Syria are up above, and Syria was coming down and oppressing the people of Judah. That's just what they did in those days. And uh, in one battle, Ahaz lost a lot of men. Well, Isaiah comes and says, you keep trusting in the Lord. Well, not keep, but start trusting in the Lord because he was a wicked king. And instead, what did Ahaz do? He went and made arrangements with the king of Assyria to come and clobber Damascus his enemy instead of trusting God he went to political machinations and manipulations and he brought the king of Assyria down into Damascus but he didn't stop there the king of Assyria comes down and destroys Israel and later in Hezekiah his son's day there's the king of Assyria knocking at the door of Jerusalem with 180,000 troops the toughest army the world's ever seen right there in front of Jerusalem. Those were tough customers, those Assyrians. Ahaz didn't trust God, tried to manipulate things, and ended up in a war zone right at his front door. There's Hezekiah. He trusted in the Lord, and what did God do? God pulled something out of his hat. God dropped his mousetrap on the Assyrians, and in one night, one angel killed them all. And Sennacherib went back to Assyria again, and for the next 100 years, even though Assyria conquered the entire Levantine provinces, they never touched Jerusalem. And I've said that a number of times in the past years. And to remember that, the difference between trusting in men and your own political manipulations versus trusting in God, who laughed at the Assyrians. Let that story just be in your heart. And that's what this psalm is about. Trust in the Lord, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. That is, your, you will be vindicated one day. Right now, you're being mocked. Right now, you're being pressed down. Right now, you're being dismissed. Right now, you're being marginalized. But one day, our adherence to the Lord will shine like the noonday sun. Now, the reason we read this psalm is because, isn't there something in the Matthew 5 where Jesus goes to this psalm and says what blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth that's said twice in this psalm he got it right from this psalm he tells us as Christians go to this psalm and know it well because this psalm was written for the believers of all ages to understand how to deal in the milieu of a wicked world (coughs) And so <clears throat> there's our focus, focus on trusting the Lord. Some other focuses on trusting the Lord is, uh, I've already quoted it a bit, but in Philippians chapter 3, there are those who mind earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven from which we also <clears throat> eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is kind of like Titus chapter 2. We are to have our focus Where? Where is our citizenship? Where is all our hope? Where is all our real concerns? Where are all our ultimate concerns? They're not just in heaven. It's waiting for a second coming. This is why postmillennialism is so disastrous. Postmillennialism says that Jesus is going to come after a thousand-year period on earth where the earth has basically gotten better to the point where everything improves and becomes amazing and this whole world is just praising and waiting for God and Jesus comes back to that. Is that what we hear, uh, have we been reading in Matthew 24? Did we read that the world's going to be a nice place, people are going to love you, you're just going to be activist and your activism is going to succeed and you're going to change government and government's become more and more, is that what you read in Matthew 24? Or did you read about wars and rumors of wars? So postmillennialism is just so incongruent at every point with Scripture. Postmillennialism wants us to have our citizenship here and focus on this world. True, as a place of, you know, the breeding ground of Christianity, they sprinkle it with that. But it just is incongruent with the scriptures. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior. Is that you? I ask you, where you sit this morning, can you say that's been your life for the past month? In the face of all the absurd laws that are being passed, and folks, if you're frustrated now with the laws being passed and they will pass more frustrating laws, wait till they start to take hold in your life. Wait till they actually start to come into force and start to change society in permanent ways. You haven't seen frustration. But where you sit just in the moderate frustration of seeing things being passed and and watching where things are heading, has this been your heart? Have you been going, wow, Lord, my citizenship is in heaven and like Psalm 37, I'm just not going to fret myself. There's not a lot I can do about it. I will vote. I will do whatever I can that's reasonable, but I'm not going to let them take my joy and put it in their pocket. Does this... Does, does this define you? I'm not talking about daily frustrations, but in your your present outlook in the world is your citizenship in heaven, and you hold on to that citizenship with all you can. It's your right, it's your privilege, it defines you. And there's no one getting into heaven that God doesn't let in. There's a wall on that border. It's called repentance and faith. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we're waiting for a Savior. Is that what you're looking for? What are you looking for right now in your life? What is the great hope of your life? Sure, you can have all these intermediate hopes, and they're fine. You know, I hope I get a paycheck this next coming Friday. I hope I get to make it. Lord, don't come back until I get my two week vacation in Fripp. I mean, I'm that foolish. But is your citizenship really in heaven? See, if it's not in heaven, you're going to get frustrated about everything going on and you're going to have angst against what we're even talking about. You're not going to be able to discern it. You're not going to be able to understand it. It's not going to make sense to you. America's falling apart. You're telling me I should disregard it. No, I'm not telling you that. I'm telling you to get on your knees and pray. I think Chris did a whole message on that. We have lots of things that we can do and it starts right here. This is the most powerful weapon in the world. Are you wielding it, or are you thinking of lesser things? He's going to transform the body of our humble state, our humility, into conformity with the body of his glory. We're going to get glorified one day by the exertion of his power, irresistible power that he has even to subject all things to himself. When you look at your rotten heart and you think, there's just no hope for me, Jesus is going to fix that heart one day. He's going to do it. So, um, hard to imagine, but he will. So where's your citizenship becomes the great question. Colossians, if you've been raised with Christ, have you been raised with Christ? Isn't that what baptism's about? Died with him, rose with him. Isn't like like the core of Christianity? Have you been raised with Christ, and what are you supposed to be doing? Seeking the things that are above. The things where Christ is. The things with Jesus, our common hope is. This is what we have in common. I was just reading about in, in Isaiah 2, where it says they'll beat their sword, swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and nations shall rise up, not rise up against nation anymore. God is going to judge among nations. God is going to give peace among nations. I think that is already true with Christians. When we're our better selves as Christians... Across this whole world, in every land, every color, every thought pattern, every culture, we have unity and we have peace. Isaiah 2 is happening already. It's happening among believers. It's happening among people whom Jesus pulls out of the world and rescues from the world of sin and darkness and makes them part of his new humanity where there's no more war. Not on things that are on the earth, for you've died and your life is hid with Christ and God. You've died, your life is hid with Christ and God. Is that the identity that you have of yourself? I've died and my life is hid with Christ and God. This impinges on the topic of Christians and the state in the difficult challenge we have of being in a nation where we're allowed to influence things. It would be way easier. We would, we would spend one week on this if we were under a kingship, wouldn't we? it's like the king said the Parliament, you know whatever said that's it deal with it and move on and let's serve the lord but because we have this opportunity to get involved and potentially fix things at least we think that then it creates all these problems for us doesn't it all these well, what about what about this what about that just set your minds on the things above and it fixes a lot of those things persecution Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you, you might have peace in the world, you will have tribulation. We have been in a unique period of human history where as Christians in America, we have not been persecuted. And now we're flipping out because that is changing. Okay. I look in the mirror, I go, Steve, what you're really bummed about is that you used to have it good and now it's not looking so good anymore. (laughs) And I'm upset about it. And I don't want it to happen. Any of you here want it to happen? I don't. But my citizenship is in heaven, not here. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take courage, what? You can, you know, lobby your, your, you know, your senators and your congressmen, and no. Jesus has overcome the world, and in him and his coming, and the new heavens and new earth, we have eternal life. Civil disobedience, we've talked about that. There's examples of it, self-defense. So these are the new covenant directives. So I think we got to question 12 last time, but I want to pop over real quick to question 31, because I wanted to get to that before we left today. So, Chris, you want to ask the Lord to be with us?
1: Sure. <clears throat> Father, as we um, engage these questions, we pray you'd give us wisdom, and Lord, that everything that we say, every footstep, as it were, would be according to your word, and um, Lord, that the people would be helped, and you'd be honored. For Jesus'
0: sake, amen. Amen. So here's the question, and this is a good one. Gwen says, because Gwen has an answer to some of these questions that, you know, is not perhaps what the question maker was was hoping for. Gwen has said, well, what about that question? I said, they're good questions, even though I don't agree with what they think the answer should be. They're great questions because these are issues that are out there. Mm -hmm. And not everybody has, you know, thought through everything and... So this is a great question because it's a question that's out there. John the Baptist was beheaded for calling out Herod's sin of adultery. Most of you remember that. He had his brother's wife, et cetera, et cetera. Um, This is, in the end, what got John the Baptist, got his head cut off. Um, He didn't have to do it. Okay, well, I'm not sure about that. He could have just stayed out of politics altogether. Um, Okay, I, I don't think this was politics. So this question has an assumption behind it that Herod, uh, John the Baptist, by calling out Herod, had gotten into the political arena. And that's actually not true. How do we know that's not true? Real quick, anybody? Pardon? Okay, well, yeah, he might have been. But, but what was John the Baptist's ministry? Was he an average Christian? Okay. Okay. Was he like the greatest man that had ever lived to that point? And why was he the greatest man that had ever lived? Yeah, he was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. This is a unique guy. He's not an example of every Christian. He's a unique person. And what was his ministry? What was his message? Right, repent and believe on him who's coming. So him calling out Herod, was that going into politics or was that merely an extension of his ministry to the highest classes? And I think a lot of people think that he got into the political arena and they use that to justify post-millennial engagement with the culture. And I'm like, no, that's just a wrong presupposition to begin with. He couldn't stay out of politics because he wasn't in it ever and he was never going to go in it. He was going to speak to anybody and everybody. Politics was a non-issue to him. It's a non-issue to God. And so he just extended his ministry of repent and believe to the highest level. Herod, was, was Herod a Roman or was Herod a Jew? Was Herod under the Old Covenant? Was Herod a candidate to whom John the Baptist was sent, specifically? So again, the, the, this question is a good one because it represents sort of a, an assumption that's invalid, that John the Baptist stepped out of his place to talk to Herod. He just didn't call attention to the wickedness of the political leader. He, didn't, he said, you shouldn't have that wife. You should repent. Should we do the same? Okay? Should we do the same as John the Baptist put forth as an example for Christian ministry? Should we be calling everybody everywhere to repent and believe on Jesus? Sure. Are we stepping into the political arena when we do that? So there you have it. Someone should be telling Donald Trump he needs to repent on Jesus of all his sins, which we know a lot about, unfortunately. And I'm pretty sure Mike Pence did that to him faithfully. Don't know what the outcome is. They should be doing it to Joe Biden, because... Would any of you be upset if Joe Biden became a Christian and ended up being a new heavens, new earth with you? That's the big question. What about Nancy Pelosi? What about Chuck Schumer? What if the Lord saved all three of them? And you have to live with them in eternity. Would you, like, put space between? I mean, where are you at in this? So we'll talk to anybody, anytime, anywhere, of any station in life that King Jesus commands everyone to repent believe on him. God calls the whole world to repent. Acts 17. God used to just the King James says winked at, you know, what happened with the nations? That winked at is a is not what it means. It means God over, He didn't overlook the nations, He passed them by. That's what the word means. For millennia, God passed by the entire world and let them all perish in darkness and sin. But now, in a blessing, he commands everybody to what? Get saved. Have eternal life. He commands you to have eternal life. That's our message. And it's to anybody and everybody. And God engineered the Apostle Paul to go and speak in front of whom? Be a testimony to whom? Caesar. To Caesar. Okay. So if God engineers that in your life, great, but he had better engineer it. And that's when Paul used his Roman citizenship not to get put to death. He didn't use his Roman citizenship as a platform for political activism. He uses his Roman citizenship at times when it was convenient so that he could (coughs) be a witness to anybody and everybody. Should we do the same? Yes. Now here's the question. Was Richard Warmbrand wrong for opposing communism? And a lot of you have been listening to Richard Richard Warmbrand for... uh, Some of you have been listening to him lately... I've wanted to, but I just haven't been able to get to it, haven't had time. I've been reading a really cool book uh, or listening to a really cool book called Human Diversity, The Biological Evidence to Undermine the Current Political Cultural Evaluation of It. Uh, really amazing, The Biological Evidence Against Social Justice. Anyway, that's another story. <clears throat> but Richard Warmbrand, was he wrong for opposing communism? Well, here's my problem with this question. Maybe Chris could speak to it. He may have listened to it. I don't know what is meant by he opposed communism. Okay? If I just take the question's reference at face value, I only feel like, okay, he opposed communism. Someone who knows the details may have a different opinion of what that phrase means than what I think it means. So I'm not sure what that means, that he opposed communism. I'm going to assume that he got arrested for the gospel's sake, at least I hope so, and that in being arrested and being in prison, he was dealing with communists. And in that sense, he would call them out in their false ideology, their ideology that's necessarily atheistic. Their very nature of communism is that it's atheistic. You cannot be a communist and be a believer. You just can't. The two don't go together. Um, you're compromising somewhere. It's inconsistent somewhere. And so he's opposing atheists who, if you deny God, well, then what's left? Well, what's left is the state, uh, autonomy, whatever. And so he's opposing them because they were using it against him. I I wasn't there. You weren't there. Um, We haven't been under that situation, so how would we respond? I can't say he was wrong if the picture is, as it's phrased just on the surface that he was taking up, you know, political activism against the communists, I would say absolutely he was wrong. Because he's a minister of the gospel. What is he doing engaging politics and culture in that way? But I don't think that's what he was doing. But if he was, which the question kind of maybe references or asks about, then he would be. It's, it's, it's just not our job. We oppose social justice here, by the way, because it's entered into the church. And we also have to live with it. And it's going to rain down on us as Christians one day some pretty tough situations. Already is in many places. But we're not taking up arms against it. It's only when Christians try to embrace it and substitute it for the gospel. Then we have a problem because now it's heresy. Now it's Christian syncretism. It's like Colossians. You don't mix Eastern philosophy with the gospel. That's why Colossians was written. We don't mix social justice, which is really nothing more than postmodern activism in a new suit of clothes. We don't mix postmodernism with the gospel. It doesn't, doesn't work. He would have been able to avoid being imprisoned and tortured for 14 years if he had. So if that's the case, that you know, if he didn't oppose communism, he didn't have to go to prison, then, well, in my opinion, he was in prison for nothing. The way the, quest, the, the, you know, the question frames it. I'm just going by the question. If the real story is, he got, again, he got thrown into prison because of the gospel, because I can just imagine communists oppressing. Uh, no doubt in my mind that's what they have done and will do continually. Well, then that's fine. He's in prison for the gospel. But if he's in prison for a political agenda, then, well, good luck, Richard. Was it worth it? Did you fix it? I mean, so... That's my response. Chris may have another one.
1: No, I mean, I I, I used to know more about Richard Vernbrand, but I've forgotten so much. I've been most acquainted recently with Joseph Son, who I think lived in the same era in the same country. Vernbrand was Romania, right? Yeah, and so Joseph Son, Romanian pastor as well. And yeah, his whole agenda was to, Joseph Son's whole agenda was to, as pastors, train them for how to suffer well. And his mes- his message was, you know, we conquer these men, these interrogators, these questioners by our love, by, their go- by the gospel, and by our willingness to be slaughtered. So that's his message. I don't know what Vernbrand's is, but that's his. So I don't know. I mean, I know that Wurmbrand was one of the ones that started Voice of the Martyrs, but I just can't remember some of the details there. Yeah. So I don't know if that would be accurate to characterize him as someone who just opposed communism, and that's why he went to jail. Maybe it is. I, I'm not real sure. So, yeah.
0: So in a day of celebrity preachers and celebrity figures, remember, there are celebrity preachers out there who didn't want to be celebrities. They were turned into it against their desire. Others are probably happy to and a lot in between. But in the day of celebrity examples like this, are the, is Richard, Richard Warmbrand uh, an authority for truth for us? Is his story, which who even knows the real details, and you weren't there, is his story an authoritative example for us? Okay? I mean, it's an encouragement. I'm, I'm going to believe that he was actually in prison for the gospel, so I'm encouraged that he went through it and he gets his reward in heaven.
1: Yeah, actually, his book title is Tortured for Christ. Yeah. So, so I mean, that may kind of settle it. Yeah. I think he was, from his perspective, he was put in there because of, because of the gospel. Because of the gospel. Does anybody have any more clarity on that or? Are we missing something? I
0: mean yeah. I just watched as a turn in secret Yeah. And I think that's just pretty obvious for everything. All all of these questions in the end they summarize into this. Is the government telling us to do something that's going to be contravene God's commands? If that's happening, then we just go with God's commands. Hence my essence in reality. If the government tells me to do something that's in God's commands, great, but I'm not doing it because of the government. I'm doing it because of God's commands. So it really boils down to this. And by the way, remember, I I have to reduce, I spend all day reducing data to its simplest elements. So I reduce it all to this. I'm going to obey God's commands. I don't really care about the rest. If the rest fits in with that, great. If the rest supports that, Great. I'll use my citizenship in America, which used to be more significant than it is today. I'll use my rights as a citizen. But those rights aren't given to me by the government. They're given to me by God, according to what my Constitution and Declaration of Independence says, that these are God-given rights, not government-given rights. So I'm not going to go and thank the government because they don't oppress me. Oh, thank you for letting me speak the way God said I could speak. You know? Thank you for letting me defend myself the way God said I could defend myself thank you for letting me to freely associate the way God said I can freely associate, you see. I'm not going to give the government stars for simply doing, you know, uh, not oppressing and undermining my rights that God has given me. And that's what I mean. That Bill of Rights is interesting, but it simply enumerates things I have and I own. I do not need that Bill of Rights to own them. It merely acknowledges them. And it's trying to put a frame and a boundary around government, not around me. It sets me free and puts government to account. That's what that Bill of Rights is for. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> that's why I can say they're, they're somewhat irrelevant to me. I'm going to serve the living God. And I'm going to live by his truth and his righteousness. And the rest is it's up to whatever government you're under wants to say. So... If they transgress what God says, we're going to do what God says. If they agree with what God says, we're going to do what God says. So if you really want to reduce it to its fundamental element on this page, the things that matter are public, private, and what God says and all of that. And if government agrees, great. If they don't, well, get prepared for conflict. So anyway... Any other things on this question about John the Baptist? I thought it was an excellent question. I was absolutely glad it was posed. Yeah. Yeah. I think I used to be part of the organization that he had established, and we would, they would, you would sign up, and they would send you twenty-five sections of the Bible, all the same section, and then they would give you twenty-five addresses, and you would had to handwrite them on an envelope and send them to Russia. Might not have been his organization, but it was something like that. And you would send this, this little section of the Bible to Russia, and then they would send 25 different sections to somebody else. 25, And so the 25 people got these sections, so together you sent the Bible into into Russia. And if, if the mail got through, then somebody could get a whole New Testament at least. And uh, um, so it was pretty significant. I asked them one day, I, I was talking to them on the phone, I said, well, I mean, the communists run the show over there. Isn't this like not getting through? And they said, oh, no, 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 no. you got to understand, only 6% of the people at that time were communists, number one. And number two, the people in the post office, when this comes through, uh, they're going to look at it and go, okay, I want to send it through for freedom's sake, or I'm going to take this and sell it because it's worth a lot of money. (laughs) So the Bibles got through. Um, It was quite interesting. And I did that for years until they said, send us money to defeat communism. I'm like, I can't do that. That's not my mission. My mission was to send Bibles in the gospel, not defeat communism. Anyway, so good question. It's helpful. Uh, the Apostle Paul used his Roman citizenship multiple times to, to, toward his advantage. If we as American citizens have certain unique rights in the world, should we use them to oppose evil? Interesting way of sort of phrasing that. Um, I thought the question was going good until the last part. And I thought, well, I don't know. Um, 32, sorry. Uh, These last ones I want to get to because the other ones were kind of a lot of them together. Um, Paul uses Roman citizenship to his what? And what advantage was that? To stay alive, alive. okay. What were the two places where he he specifically used his advantage that we know of? Once they had him tied up, right? They were about to, you know, interview him, as they would say. And he said, are you going you to, you know, interview a Roman citizen uncondemned? And everybody went, oops. Yeah, you don't do that. Um, and then the other time was when he was before the tribunal, I believe with Festus and, uh, anyway, yeah, King Agrippa. And, he made his appeal to who? I appealed to Caesar. And King Agrippa's like, well, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, we were going to let him go. <laughs> it's like, Paul, you blew it, buddy. <laughs> um, but I don't think that's how Paul felt because he, was, he wanted to go to Rome and he wanted to speak before the kings of the earth. So he used his citizenship for his own advantage or for the gospel in his ministry, you see? And so if we're going to appeal to Paul using his Roman citizenship, that's great, but let's keep it within the boundaries that it's presented. Let's not go, and here's what usually happens. Paul used his Roman citizenship to his advantage. Then you go, well, no, Paul used his Roman citizenship. And, And you're two times removed in that statement from what the gospel or the book of Acts actually presents. And then you go, okay, now that we've got this general principle that he used his Roman citizenship, now let's extrapolate that into all these things that Christians should be doing, you see? And then they invent all these doctrines and all these mandates that the Bible does not endorse. But it sounds so good. And they claim biblical authority for it. I'm like, no, you don't have biblical authority for that. These are just your opinions. We're only told in the book of Acts that he used his Roman citizenship so he could present the gospel before kings. So we need to look at that. And so the apostle used this Roman citizenship multiple times, twice, toward his advantage. I, I just don't, can't agree with the way that's stated. I agree with generally where it's heading. If we as American citizens have certain unique rights in this world, um, any of you think that you can go to Pakistan right now and just get in and get out just easy peasy. Anybody here think you can go to Pakistan? Just zoom in, zoom out. I'm an American citizen. If you touch me, my government will come in and really give you a hard time. Anybody here believe that that's of value? <laughs> See, American citizenship will get you uh, in a hostage situation perhaps. American white, white boy shows up in Pakistan, man, let's, you know, capture him and put him in prison and, you know, we can make a whole lot of political hay out of this. So the second part about this question is we don't have unique rights as Americans anymore. So that's gone and that's over. And then should we, if we did have them, even if we did have them, should we use them to oppose evil? Anybody here think that we should use our rights as citizens to oppose evil, that that's our our mission, our personal or mission as a body of believers? Well, as the word stands, does that sound like something you'd read in the New Testament? No. Okay. So it's another excellent question because it reflects what I would say very loose thinking that's out there. It's not, it's, it just lacks such precision at every point. And there's a lot of stuff going on in the internet where there's this, all this imprecision and extrapolation and assumption to lay the foundation for assertions about what Christians should and should not do. Does that make sense? So examine the assumptions that people are putting forth out there. They're just not true. We talked about the one where Daniel opened his window, a public thing. I'm like, well, what if the window opened from the inside and not to the outside? (laughs) Um, How would it be a public thing because your window's open? And he was inside praying. I mean, how is that a public thing? He was simply doing whatever he was doing, but people go, oh, he opened his window and made a public spectacle. I'm like, no, he didn't. He opened his window. If you went over to my house and Gwen opened the window on a hot summer day, what would you think? That she was inside praying against the, you know, the the governmental statement, you shouldn't do that? Or would you simply think she opened her window? So assumptions are made that just don't hold up. The satraps were the ones that saw that Daniel was praying, not the rest of the public. It was the satraps, his buddies in public service, who destroyed him, not the average citizen. So, again, when you, when you read these things, be careful that people make blanket statements that are merely assumptions that really don't hold water when you read carefully read the details of a passage. So we're not here to oppose evil. We're here to do what? If this question is said, should we use them to what? Spread the gospel, sure. A lot of people become ESL teachers, right? English is a second language in China and other places, right? That's getting harder and harder to do, but that's a good thing. So using privilege to go somewhere because you have an English language that's valuable to the Chinese uh, because they want to take over the world. Um, So, you know, they go over there and and help them do that for the sake of the gospel. (laughs) That's what's happening. I mean, okay. Question 33. We actually have the opportunity to influence our government. True. How much ought we to engage with them? Where are your priorities? You make your choices, but do it with judgment day perspective. One day you're going to give an account, Jesus said in John 12, I believe, or 11, that you are going to give an account for every idle word you've ever spoken. Every word that you've ever spoken has been recorded. And you will give an account for it one day. So, looking at the overwhelming statements of the New Testament that our hope and our heart and our privilege is in a kingdom of God that's coming with the coming of Christ, the consummation of a kingdom that's already here. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're here for the gospel, all of the urgency of the gospel, where we're to put our hope, where to put our affections. Where do, how do you, how do, you, do you answer the question with all of that? You pray to the Lord and ask every day, I assume, Lord, what should I do to serve you this day? And if the Lord drops on you, well, you should raise your kids well. You're like, oh gosh, I was hoping I should go to the beach. Oh well, another day with the kids. If the Lord drops on you, okay, you got to go to work and you got to deal with that honorary situation at work. You go, oh well, I was, you know, hoping for something else, but that's what I'm going to serve the Lord with today. If he drops on you, you're supposed to be, in, you know, go up and work your way up to being a manager and not just be content to be this or that. Well, then that's what you're supposed to do. Whatever the Lord truly and honestly drops on you, then that's what you should be doing. So if he drops on you that you should support a political candidate, and he truly does that, it's God, not just you, it's God, then do it. But just remember, it better be from God. That's all I'm saying. And if it's something really significant, if it's something out of the ordinary, you're probably going to want other people to agree with you that it's something you should be doing. If I told you I was going to run for president, what would you tell me? Say what? Oh, really? Okay. Thanks. Thanks. You don't think I'd make a good president, huh? No, I wouldn't. I disagree with you. I would not. I would have everybody mad at me a lot sooner than Donald Trump. I'm an engineer. I build things, and you use math, and it's either right or it's wrong. It doesn't work when you are dealing with all these people you have to appeal to and assuage and manage their political machinations. I would fail. I fail at political machinations at work. I would never make it as president. It'd
1: okay. be it'd be fun to watch him in a debate, though. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Cowden, uh, uh, Mr. Cowden, Mr.
0: So we all have our place in the world, and if you're cut out to be in government and survive the blood sport, and Mike Pence did, he's like the only one I've ever seen do it. Um, some of our representatives quit. Who was our representative that quit? Gowdy, he was really good. I met him, talked with him for a while. And he was really good, and he quit, because he said, there's no hope here. That's why he quit. It's like, I'm wasting my time. See, not only Steve Gowdy says you might be wasting your time, Trey Gowdy, one of the great congressional representatives of South Carolina, said he was wasting his time. Because there's too much corruption. Yeah, Yeah. If he had run, he'd have been elected again. He'd be elected, you know, like... Like some of our other politicians, he'd be elected over and over because he's just really good. But he said it was a waste of time. So how much should you engage with? Ask the Lord, pray, let the scriptures soak into you. And if you are overwhelmed with the love of Christ and you're doing everything you can to present the gospel and the Lord then says, you know, I want you to be in some place that's gonna be really tough, it's a blood sport, again. Remember, it, it's, I, I'm not. Read the book of Daniel. They put people in lions' dens if they can, they put people in burning furnaces if they can. And if you think that those politics are any different on any level, then you're kidding yourself. I mean, those politics start where? In junior high, right? That's where it all begins. And they just get better and better and bigger and bigger at it. So, I mean, that's my answer to this. If the Lord is really laying that on you, do it. But if he's not, what are you thinking?
1: And can I say, too, I don't know who wrote the question, but also just thinking about if we, have, if we actually have the opportunity to influence our government for what exactly? For what end? If it's that we might live a quiet life in all godliness and dignity because God wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, then you can do that on your knees. And I just I say that because I think that we devalue what the Bible actually holds out as the way you influence government. I think we devalue that. I still think we put prayer as a, well, Well, all we can do is pray. I really think we, we think that way. Even though you and I in here, we all know that's a bad way of thinking, we really do think of it that way. And Paul actually says, first of all then, brethren... First of all, then, I urge that prayers and entreaties. That was number one to Paul with regard to government. And so we can't devalue that, um, discount it at all. And also, with a lot of these questions, which are good, which we're all having to wrestle through, we also have to weigh if we've devalued the urgency of the gospel, too. So if we feel this compulsion to now go change society... Um, it could come from a devalue and a depreciation of the urgency of the gospel. Because if you truly understand that this is a war for the souls of men and eternity is at stake, then why would you spend time doing something for the world of men? So, I know that can be an absolute statement taken wrong, but you know what I'm saying. I think that we can devalue the gospel, too, um, you know, and and you know, see see it sort of as a small thing. Oh, that's nice. We do you know door to door evangelism, or you know, and we do that every now and then. And but but in the in, Steve and I both, and, I'm, and I and I hope and pray, and I know that it is the case for all of you, that we would be people truly burdened for men and women and boys and girls to come to know Jesus Christ. Paul says, "I do all things for the sake of the gospel." That's what he. I do all things, whether it's appealing to Caesar. Or whatever it is, all things. Think of that. All things. So, yeah, even if you're raising your kids, or even if you're going to work, or even if you're looking for inroads for the gospel. All things. And we, th- this whole topic can show and reveal what do we really value? What do we really treasure? What do we really appreciate? What do we really see as utterly urgent? So I just, I just say that, that we, our prayer times, our prayer groups need to be stoking the fires of gospel urgency. It really needs to. We need to get a burden for people. It's not fun to have a burden for people, for neighbors. It's not fun to weep for, 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 for lost people. But that, that's like Jesus, right? That's like Christ. It doesn't suit our American sensibilities of comfort and ease. But that's Jesus Christ. He was a man of sorrows. So just consider these things. And, you know, I just, you know, we all need to be praying that God enlighten our hearts, like Steve was saying, to the love of Jesus Christ. The love of Christ would genuinely compel us and push each other this way so that we don't get locked into Americanized Christianity, which is not Christianity. So I hope that that just more and more, we belabor these things up here over and over and what Steve's saying because we don't want that to be the case. We want to have a Christianity that can be mimicked in any place, any culture, any station because it's not tied to our plight in an earthly sense. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that's just some things that have been emerging in my mind as we've been talking this morning. Again, I'm very thankful for the questions. I've asked them myself, so please don't hear me dismissing them. I'm just thinking more and more. We just, yeah, have to value
0: Well, we want to make time for this one last question. Amen, Chris. You started to answer this one. If being salt means we act as a preservative in this world, how would we do this by pulling out of politics altogether? So again, the question is great. Great because, number one, it illustrates a genuine concern. Um, it also illustrates a misconception. Right. Um, and the concern is legitimate, and the misconception is a misconception. So it's kind of an interesting question in that way. So it pose, poses, if salt, bean salt, means we act as a preservative in the world, preservative in the world, and that's what's in question and a misconception. When Jesus says you are the salt of the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth, what is the context of being salt and light? Anybody? Yes. Persecution's right before it. Yeah, well, I'm sort of looking for the bigger context. The frame of it is Matthew 5 through 7. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you're going to interpret what salt and light means, you have to interpret it within that framework, right? That's the first place, the first framework you look at. What did Jesus mean to be light? Well, we pretty much got that down because that's used in other places where you know we're holding forth the word of life. Um, we are the light in the sense of holding forth God's word and the gospel to people. We're bringing the light to the nations. There's all this Old Testament background of light. Arise, shine, for the light has come, Isaiah. So there's light in the Old Testament, which is now expressed in the New Testament. New covenant in the new covenant era as the preaching of the gospel. um, Galilee of the nations upon them that sat in the land of the shadow of death has the light shined. Okay, so light's pretty easy to interpret. Salt, it's not quite so easy to interpret. Salt can be for taste or salt can be for preserving. And the emphasis of Jesus was if salt loses its saltness, now, we might think, well, that means taste. You know, you put some, I don't know, some of the sea salt just doesn't have the pungent of uh, taste of the uh, regular table salt we're used to. And so uh, you kind of know, well, there's a difference in taste. Um, whether it's good for you or not, I'm not worried about those issues. Not an issue to me at this point on these issues, things we're talking about. So salt can lose its savor. Salt can lose its saltness. right? And if it's we lose our saltness, then we're not good for anything. Well, in the context, what would constitute being salty? Okay, that would be a general statement, but think of some of the details that Jesus says you're going to do to be salt and to be light. Poor in spirit, Poor in spirit pure in heart, meek, thirsting for righteousness, And Jesus sums it up and says that men will see your what? Good works and glorify your Father in heaven, right? And you'll live holy lives on a finer grain and scale than even the Old Testament. You've heard it said you shouldn't, you know, commit adultery. I say to you, if you look, if you invest your mind into sexual activity, you're in sin. You've heard it said, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I tell you, you know, don't resist him as evil. You know, start with some love. Don't respond with eye for eye; respond with love for eye. Um, you know, be like your father, who's in heaven. Image bearingness. Um, you know, you've heard it said, "You shall not forswear swear yourself, but perform your oaths unto the Lord." I say unto you, you know, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Don't swear by heaven or by anything. Be honest in your speech. So. He brings a finer grain of holiness in our lives than the Old Covenant or the Ten Commandments or anything like that. So salt is in this context of our attitude, our perspective, our enduring persecution, our living holy and righteous lives, our praying for God's sake instead of for everybody else to see us, giving alms for true genuine good work's sake not so everybody else can see us, setting our affections on the things above, put your hope in heaven, You know, put your treasure in heaven. Remember that? Pray like this. That's being salt. Is there anything in these three chapters, five, six, and seven, that you can remember about political activism as an expression of being the salt of the earth? I don't think it's there. What about the bigger framework of the Gospel of Matthew? is there anything in there about followers of Jesus becoming politically active in order to engage the world for God? Is there that in there? This is what I mean, folks, is when the post-millennialists come, and I'm picking on them because they're on the rise, because they're in a, a setting now where post-millennialism will appeal to a lot of conservatives because it gives them, lets them sprinkle holy water on their political activism. Not that their political activism is, is wrong in itself. It's just it can't be a substitute for the gospel. That's our point. And so if you want to become politically active, there are questions that are earlier, and they're good questions. Sure, if you think you should be. I mean, I think we already are. We once a year go out to life chain. Is that not political activism? Stand on a road and hold signs for an hour? People don't even care anymore. We used to get really strong reactions. Now it's just blasé, I guess. It's not even an issue anymore to people. They may not even know what we mean. Um, Some of you have gone to March for Life in Washington. That's protest. That's marching. That's political activism for a right cause and a real cause. And someone will say, well, there might be other causes, and there may be. If there was true systemic racism that I knew about, I'd march for it in Greenville. But the march that they had in Greenville wasn't for true systemic racism. It was for something else. I couldn't be involved in it. So, you know, there's things that we can do, but it's not because we're the salt of the earth. To be the salt of the earth, you have to love Jesus Christ. You have to be promoting the gospel. You have to be meek. You have to have a pure heart. You have those, that's the salt of the earth. So let's not let this passage be hijacked for post-millennial purposes. All right? How would we do this by pulling out of politics altogether? Well, you know, where do we make our biggest impact? I, I think people think that politics actually have a huge impact. <laughs> and when you get in it, you realize you're going to have very little impact if you're going to be righteous. That's, that's what you find out. Your, your voice is drowned out. You're actually used. They want a couple of conservatives. They always want conservatives, by the way, because this is their method. Let's get a conservative on the board of this. Let's have the conservative in this circle of people so we can say, well, conservatives were there. This is bipartisan. No, it's not. You're being used. They they actually teach you this, by the way, because I've been to some... uh, I was involved in the Republican National Convention for a while and went to some of their classes, and they'll teach you all this stuff. You know, don't get used, um, that kind of thing. So... Pulling out of politics altogether, you know, we're going to live in the world in all these different strata. We're going to have policemen. We're going to have school teachers. We're going to have you know people working in in various places. If we have people working in government, great. But at my work, the only difference I make at work is that people don't curse around me. Should I ever get the chance to go to lunch, kind of hard to do when you're working from home all the time. Um, I'm going to talk to them about the gospel. Should I get that chance? I have, and got shut right down. Talked to one girl, and as soon as I mentioned Jesus Christ, poof, never saw her again. Psst, it's gone. So, and I just did it casually. Um, you know, so everywhere we are, we're going to be salt and light. Political activism is not what Jesus is talking about. So if you want to be politically active, fine. But don't try to justify it from the word of God Justify it is I'm just a citizen. Just say I'm a citizen trying to do good. And that's fine. But don't anyway, don't don't hijack the Bible to justify it. All right, well, that's the last issue. Any questions or comments or thoughts or objections or Yeah. And and I'm sure you're saying it's not that we wouldn't hope and working that in, but right. but what we can do now, we can't change the Supreme Court's decision. That's a gigantic effort, what we can do now, is on a regular basis talk to women. And I, yep, great point. All right, well that's it. Unless someone else has a burning comment or issue. Well, I had a false or, or vain hope of finishing this today. Hopefully next time we can finish questions, I think, 14 or 15 through 30. They're all pretty short ones. All right. Why don't we pray and uh, close? Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you again that your word is plain and simple. Um, sometimes we read your word and we go, how could I have just, you know, Lord, we know, how, how could we have so mis, you know, misconstrued something or not just seen it for what it's actually just simply saying? And so, Lord, just pray again as we prayed at the beginning that your word would come and seep into our bones speak to our hearts and enable us to be well-pleasing to you. Lord, in the end, when you look down from heaven, we're salt to you and uh, that you would see us, and uh, your heart would be well pleased in us that we are serving you faithfully. And uh, we just pray this in Jesus' name, amen.